Good to know that God has placed a calling on each one of our lives. We have been looking at the life of the Apostle Saul. By the way, you're in the right place. Did it feel different when you walked in the room this morning? We turned things sideways. There are reasons for that, electronic reasons having to do with the hotel. But I am glad that you're here. I, I like this. Uh, I, I like this a, a good bit. Um, I'm going to be try to be fairly stationary here in front of the mic this morning. Uh, and so you guys bear with me as I adapt to that. I won't be running around too much. But go ahead and open your Bibles again to the first scripture reading that we had this morning, the book of Acts chapter 9. The reason that we had two passages is because together, combined, they make a long passage, but they give us narrative of what's happening in the life of this man named Saul. You know how that Saul persecuted the church, how that he watched over the cloaks of those who were putting this Christian Stephen to death by stoning him. How he was fervent and zealous in seeking to destroy the church. And yet what uh, we read in Galatians, the last verse, or next to the last verse in Galatians chapter 1, that they only were hearing it said, the, the Christians, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God. What a radical change in this man's life, a terrorist, a persecutor, one who hated Christ and his church. And yet, when he met Christ, when Christ came to him and called him and saved him on the road to Damascus, when Paul was given a new life, a new direction, a new meaning, things radically changed and radically transformed in his life. And I want us to focus on a few things this morning. There's so many lessons and so much that I believe God would have you and I take from this aspect of the life of Saul that is just principles that revealed continuously throughout scripture. And so we're going to pick up with the narrative of Paul has been met by Ananias. And God gave Ananias a message. He said, you go to this one, this Saul, he's blind. He's in the street called straight. He's in Judas's house. And I've got a message for you to give him, but I also want you to pray for him. We've got a mission and a calling, a radical change in the, in, in the direction of his life. Well, when, when Paul got the message and when Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and I'm going to use Saul and Paul interchangeably. That's just the way my mind works. Y'all bear with me. But when he got the message and, and when, when he, there is clear evidence throughout Scripture that God radically changed and transformed his life. No missionary has more uh, was used greater by God to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul. No one more fervently pursued him. No one was more wholly committed to him. No one had this higher calling, this deeper calling that we just heard sung, sung about that embraced it more completely than Saul did. And yet, Saul is just one life. He's one part, one member of the body of Christ. And if you're here and you're saved, you, too, are a member of the body of Christ. You, too, have a calling. You, too, have a mission and a commission. You actually, I think, need to embrace the fact that you have what we would call, what we do call, a higher calling. I don't know if you've ever read John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. Have any of you ever familiar with it? Have you ever read it? In it, he gives the uh, record that was given by a publication about two missionaries who had invested their lives in another country in the kingdom of God and that they lost their lives in God's service. They were killed and they both died. And that newspaper article said that their death was a tragedy. Dr. Piper, in his book, 
says that's not a tragedy. He says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I have the quote because I want to make sure that I uh, don't misquote it. John Piper writes, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider this story from the February 1998 Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was just 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. Picture them, he says, standing before Christ at the great day of judgment, saying, look, Lord, I have seashells. Investing their life, but not investing their life in the things that matter. Not investing their life in eternity. And we all, we all know of this. We, we heard the uh, business guru, we're familiar with those who have been consultants, who said, don't, don't waste your life by climbing a ladder and working hard climbing a ladder only to get to the top and find out that it's attached to the wrong wall. Uh, don't make good time down the highway of life only to realize that at the end you're not at the destination you should have been. You have gone to the wrong destination. I told you the story of how when my dad had a heart attack, he was at the hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and I went there with my sisters, Melissa and Millicent, and the three of us were in a car, and we, I was asleep in the back. I'd been working all day. They swung by and picked me up. I was asleep on the back seat. I don't know if it was Melissa or Millicent that was driving, but they were driving, and we were going through Greenville and then up to Asheville and from Asheville all the way across to Memphis. And so we went up 25, we got on 26, and uh, then uh, I was awakened when they said, we're not sure that we're heading in the right direction. And they took Interstate 40 east. Uh, Memphis is not east of Asheville, just in case you're wondering. And so we, we didn't go too far. We only spent about an hour out of the way. By the time we get down 30 minutes, turn around and come back and head the other direction. But you can make a really good time in life in the wrong direction. You can really pursue things that will bring temporary pleasure and things that, that, that tend to motivate us, things that, of course, the, the, the world would want us to be motivated by and our own flesh would want us to be motivated by. And yet it's not the things that matter. It's not the things that matter for eternity. Paul had been saved. He had been given this commission by God. Ananias had explained this commission to him, including the suffering that he was to face. And for some days, Paul was with the disciples at Damascus. But he didn't wait. Immediately, verse 20, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. He did that which was bold. He had gone to the synagogues to persecute the Christians. Remember, he had gone to, to stand up for the traditional Judaism that denied that Christ was the Messiah, that was continuing to wait for the Messiah. And yet now he stands up and he says, I was wrong. Here's the truth. This Jesus, he is the Son of God to the very people that he had been supported before. All who heard him were amazed. And they said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Excuse me, in Jerusalem, of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose? Hey, buddy, you came here for a different reason. You came here to put them to flight. You came here to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul stayed faithful to the message. Saul increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Jerusalem, and he did it by proving that Jesus 
was the Christ. And then we come to when many days had passed. Now, the reason that we included our reading in Galatians with the narrative in Acts is Galatians, Paul gives us a little bit more of what happens during this period of time. He's in Damascus. He's approached by Ananias. He goes to the synagogues and preaches. And yet we also find in Galatians chapter 1 that Paul doesn't stay there. He tells us very clearly when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. This is when I met Christ on the road. When God showed me Jesus in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go to sign up for a class. I didn't take a seminar. I didn't go through a discipleship program with the other apostles, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And the next phrase, then after how long? Three years. I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter. So then, after three years, so you get the narrative, you get what's taking place. Are you with me? And this is where I would walk around. I might, yet. Yeah. On the way to Damascus to persecute the Christians, encounters Christ. And Christ says, you're kicking against the goads, you're, you're persecuting me, you're persecuting the church. And he's saved All of a sudden, this Messiah he's been denying is now his Messiah. This Lord he's been rejecting is his Lord. God sends Ananias to him, and God fills him with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to preach. But while he's there, after preaching in the synagogue for some days, while he's there, he has to leave Damascus. And he leaves Damascus, and he goes out into the wilderness. And it's called Arabia. This is probably not Saudi Arabia. This is probably Nabataean Arabia. And we don't know a lot about it, but we do know that it's wilderness. He was not with crowds of people. He was not sitting at the feet of a student. As a matter of fact, what he says repeatedly here and in Galatians and in other passages of Scripture is that which I give to you. I did not receive from any man, but I received it directly from God. Where did he get it? He got it in the wilderness. Years ago, when I was 15 years old, I came crying to my dad after I had come home from a youth conference. And in that youth conference, God had convicted me and The only thing I knew for sure was that God had called me to preach. That's the only thing I knew. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what that was going to look like. But I came back and I told my dad, Dad, I don't know what. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know exactly what the steps are, but I know that God's called me to preach. God's called me to full-time vocational ministry. And Dad said, start finding a school. The first conversation after praise the Lord and son, this is a high calling. This is a calling that God uses for his glory. The first thing that he said was a call to preach is a call to prepare. I want to tell you that a call to any ministry, a call to any service, a call to live your life as God intends you to live your life for his glory. This higher calling than simply pleasing other people. This higher calling than simply acquiring what we can acquire in this earth and gain and pleasure and living for self. Living for others or living for self. This higher calling calling where we live for the glory of God requires that you be prepared. And because of the mission that God had for Paul, he sent him into the wilderness. Paul wisely went to spend time alone with God to seek knowledge, to seek to be equipped, to seek to be prepared. We need to make sure that we understand a few things about this preparation that I think is pretty clear in the text. One of them is that Paul had been, for a long time, 
motivated by the approval of others. In that Galatians chapter 1 passage, you'll find back up in verse 10, Paul says, Am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I still trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. We need to understand that Paul spent a lot of time trying to please the people he respected. He wanted to please Gamaliel. He wanted to please the Sanhedrin. He wanted to please his family. He lived a good portion and made decisions about what he did and didn't do simply because he wanted the approbation of others. He wanted the approval of others. He wanted the attaboy. There was a little bit of arrogance in Paul. Have you guys picked that up in some of his testimony? I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a ruler of the Jews. I was more zealous than all of them. And part of that was his desire to succeed. Part of that was his desire to please those around him. A large part of his motivation was the, was the approval, approbation, the, the, the applause of the Sanhedrin. He adamantly worked to eradicate those infidels, those Christians. He was the young, bright hope, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, fulfilling the law as interpreted by the Pharisees. He was disciplined. He was intelligent. He was zealous. If you had been looking for someone to wipe out the Christians, he'd have been your first choice. His name would have been on the, on the top of the list. That's according to his own testimony. We read chapter Galatians 1.10 verse 13 says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But now he's been converted. Now he's met Christ. Now he has a higher calling. Now he has a new, now he's a new creation. Now he's something he's never been before. Now he's no longer living to please men. He's living to please God. And God took him to the wilderness to prepare him for that so that he would, would be changed and transformed so he would no longer be living for the approval of men. He took him to the wilderness so that he could learn not to be motivated by selfish desires. You will remember that when the Philippian church sent Paul money, he said, I'm grateful for the money you sent me. I'm glad. I'm grateful, but not so much for my sake. I'm grateful for your sake. I'm grateful for the blessing that accrues to you for your generosity to me. He says, I have learned in plenty or when there's nothing in little, I've learned to be content. Do you think Paul spent time in the wilderness being lavished with food and rest and the things that satisfied his body? No, he was toughened. He was prepared. He was equipped. He learned how to deny himself, how to not pursue selfish desires, but to pursue those things that please God. I want you to understand what happens. We need to be those people who say yes to God. Some years ago, Suzanne and I took at least one of our daughters. I don't remember who all went to my shame, but uh, Suzanne can probably help. We went to Florida to a youth conference with one of our daughters at least, maybe both, Chrissy. Thank you. And while we were there, the whole theme of that youth conference was say yes to God. Say yes to God. But say yes to God what? What doesn't matter? The answer that we should always have 
to God is yes. Ananias, there's a guy named Saul. You've got his reputation. You've heard of him. I want you to go tell him. Go lay hands on him and go pray. Lord, here I am. There's a problem. No, just go. Ananias got up and went. Ananias' response when he first had the vision was, Here am I, Lord. Anybody else you know of say, Here am I, Lord. You remember when God called Abraham? I'm going to lead you to a place where you do not know. You go, and I'll direct your path. Here am I, Lord, I'll go. What about in Genesis chapter 20? Where God gave Abraham a vision, and the vision that he gave him was a command. And he said, I want you to take Isaac, your only son, the son of promise, the the apple of your eye, and I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice him for my glory. And the next morning, Abraham gets up. He knows where he's going now. It's a place where no parent would willingly go. It's a place where it seems like no reasonable person would willingly go to do something that makes no sense at all, and yet because of his trust in God, his answer was yes. Whether they knew... What about Samuel? What about Samuel in the temple with Eli? Samuel. And he goes and says, Eli, here I am. You called. I didn't call. Go back. Samuel, here I am, Lord. He goes to Eli. Finally, finally Eli tells him, and he, he gives him good advice. He says, next time the Lord calls your name, you just simply say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And that's the attitude. Speak, Lord. Whatever you say, I am your servant. Whatever you say, I will do. Wherever you send, I will go. What about Isaiah? When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in the year that King Uzziah died, and God was seated on the throne, and the, his, the glory of his throne filled the temple, and there were seraphim and, 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 and the angels there, and they were worshiping God, saying, Holy, holy, holy. And God says, Who will go for us? Who shall I send? Go where? Go for how long? What are the benefits? Is there a pay scale? Will I become known? What will I experience? The only thing that Isaiah said was, Here am I. Send me. Send me where? Wherever you need to send me. Send me how? Send me what? What's the plan? What's the direction? The answer should always be yes. I need to learn, you and I, to be used by God, to fulfill the higher calling that God has on our life, to get beyond simply living for this world and living for the glory of God, living for ourselves and our family and those 12 people we care about, and living for a world that Christ died for. We've got to adopt the attitude of these people, including Saul and Ananias and Moses and Abraham and every person that comes to Christ and say, I am no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own agent. I'm no longer my own Lord. I'm no longer my own boss. I have bowed my knee to you. And whatever you say and however you say and whenever you say it, the answer that I say is yes. I have a higher calling. There was a time when we were in darkness, but now we are light in the Lord And we are to walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And we need to continually be trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul got this message. Now, I don't know if he learned it all in the wilderness, but I know he got the foundations of it in the wilderness. He took time away to spend time with God that God might clarify his thinking, that God might clarify his theology, that God might work in his heart and create character in him. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he reminded them, those Christians, that it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And he told them, some of you are complaining about me and some of you are praising me. It is very little, a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. He says, I, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that doesn't mean that there's not something there. I'm not hereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And so I want to kind of sum this up. You have a higher calling, which means you no longer live for others. You have to learn to not be motivated by the approval of others. And not be stopped by the disapproval of others. You have to learn not to be motivated by selfish desire. If any man will follow after me, Christ says, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And you have to learn what what, to learn those things that please God and do those. Father, I'm yours. Here I am. I'm surrendered to you. I believe another thing that happened in Paul's first three years in the wilderness of Arabia was that God was developing godly character. You remember in Galatians chapter 1, that passage that we read, Paul was telling them, I didn't talk to the apostles. I didn't go to Cephas and John and James. What I have given you, I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. He allowed his theology, his doctrine to be shaped by God. You have to allow God to work this process in your life of conforming you to the image of his son. You guys remember this, right? For those of you who have been in church for any length of time, if you've been exposed to the truth of Scripture, you will recognize that just as Paul had been transformed, when you got saved, you were transformed. Your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you were, you were completely regenerate. You became something you've never been before. But you weren't perfect. You didn't know everything you're supposed to know. You had habits that God had to break. You didn't have habits that God has to develop in you. You had some wrong thinking. Yet some wrong behaviors. And what God does as we go through this life is he changes us and convicts us and equips us and strengthens us. And he develops in us, transforms us, conforms us to the image of his son. So that like John the Baptist, we can say less of me, more of him. Less of me and my desires, less of me and my character, less of me in the expressions of my life. That others may see Jesus in me. So the first thing that God shapes that must be shaped, guys, is you got to have sound doctrine. you got to have sound doctrine. There's no more doctrinal preacher in all of Scripture than the Apostle Paul. Granted, he wrote 13 letters to the churches and to individuals that were recorded and codified as Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were addressing specific issues, many of them, in specific situations, in specific circumstances. And it's all about, thus saith the Lord, what do I do when Christians fight? What do I do when we are persecuted? What do I do when we have people from different cultures and different backgrounds as the body of Christ? What, what do we do as a church when we gather for worship? How do we display love for one another? It's easy to say love one another. It's hard to do that. What does that look like in the context of Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 13? And Paul unloads doctrine of doctrine of doctrine. Not just these great theological statements about who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished and what God has been doing from the foundation of the world. But he tells you how you ought to talk. 
And he tells you when you had not to talk at all. And he tells you how you ought to respond when someone offends you and hurts your feelings. And that you can do these things. You can forgive. You can be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? Why? Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Through the power of Christ that indwells you. The, the, the truth God is forming in Paul. Just one thing that changed. Imagine Saul the terrorist. Would you describe him as loving? You should laugh at that, okay? You should say, ha, no. Why? What do we know about Saul the terrorist? We know he's mean, hateful, spiteful. These Christians, probably the gentlest of Christians, both husbands, wives, and their children and extended family, because of what they professed and who they identified with, he went and sought them out, and he had them imprisoned. And according to his own testimony, Stephen was not the only one that he saw put to death. Is this a loving guy? Not at all. And yet you cannot read his letter to the church at Thessalonica or his letter to those Christians who lived in Ephesus. You can't read his letter to those very diverse group of people meeting all over the city of Rome who proclaimed the name of Christ and not see his love for them jumping off the page again and again. Even when he is strict, even when he is confronting sin, it is clear that his motivation is love. He's learned to love his enemies. Even in Romans chapter 9, where he's talking about the Jewish people, the people of his birth, and how they have not received the Messiah he tells them, these are the people who are seeking to kill him. You get this, right? These are the people who want him dead. These are the people who he's got to escape over the wall of Damascus in a basket to escape. Yes, Paul was a basket case. Sorry, that was bad. But he had to get out because the Jews continually sought to kill him. And yet, listen to what he says to the church at Philippi. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ. He says in, to the church at Corinth, apart from such external things, I have the daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. He's saying every day, you guys are on my heart. Every day, I am praying for you. Every day. I'm thinking of you. In 1 Thessalonians, when he's writing to that church, he says, we, we, when I was there, I was gentle among you. I, would, I treated you like a mother tenderly cares for her own children. I love you so much. I had so fond affection for you that I was so pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but my own life. I went where you went. I ate where you ate. We talked about things you wanted to talk about. I love you and spoke truth to you because you're very dear to us. From Saul, the terrorist, to Paul, the loving apostle. Let me tell you, God will take you through whatever steps he needs to take you through to equip you for the task he has for you. You have a higher calling. You live for the glory of God. You find those things that please him and do those.
You become motivated not by the approval or approbation of others, but by the glory of God. You become motivated not by self-aggrandizement or simply pleasure, biggest house, biggest car, biggest vacation, and seashells. But you become motivated by the glory of God and those things you can present to him as you stand before his throne. A higher calling. A higher calling. A life not wasted. Your, look at me, (laughs) your life matters to the kingdom of God. The God of all creation created you and called you and saved you. And he has given you a mission, a higher calling. It may not be like Paul's to travel and to teach people about Christ, but it might. It may not be to be a preacher behind a pulpit or a pastor, but it might. It may not be to be like Jim Elliott who left all that he had to be a missionary to the Indians in South America. And they took his life. Not a life wasted. A life invested for the glory of God. He's the one who said don't live for self. You're not a fool if you give up the things you can't keep to gain the things you can't lose. I'm concerned that too much of my life is playing games. It's investing in wood, hay, and stubble. When what God would have us to do is to be filled with His Holy Spirit. To be knowledgeable of God in the doctrine that He would have us learn. To be equipped with his power and to be strengthened so that wherever he places us and wherever he calls us, whatever that job is, whatever that career is, whatever that geographic location is, whatever that role is, he's glorified in us. And people know him because of our obedience to him because we say yes. I acknowledge my life matters to the kingdom of God. And that means two things. My life matters to the king. But it also means my life matters to those that God places me in the path of. Do you know that there are, God, there are people that God brings you to? Did I say that right? There are people that God will send you to. That there are God will direct your path just like he did Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Like he did Stephen and the Hellenistic temples. Like he did the Apostle Paul, Saul here. Saul in Damascus preaching in the synagogue. Saul in the wilderness being taught godly doctrine and having his character changed and transformed to where the terrorist is now a loving preacher who loves enough to speak the truth and says and models speaking the truth in gentleness and love but unwavering on the truth. Of the gospel and the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are people that God will send you to. Like he did him to the Hellenistic Jews. The same place that Stephen was preaching. Paul ends up going to preach when he finally makes it to Jerusalem. Get the connections here. There are people that God has you to go 
and engage with the gospel. And sometimes there are people that God will just send to you. If you are in the habit of saying, here am I, your servant listens, Lord, speak. Here am I, send me. Father, here I am, when you say go, I am willing to go. If you're in the habit of saying yes, the more you say yes, the more you're conformed to the image of his son, the more you're a vessel fit for the master's use, the more you will be used for the glory of God. Isn't that exciting? You want a life of adventure? Do you want a life of it? Some of us are like, no, I've had all the adventure I want. (laughs) I'm old, I'm tired. Tell it to Abraham. Tell it to Moses. But I'm retired. Hallelujah, that just gives you more time. But I'm young and I don't know anything. Absolutely, hallelujah, that makes you a vessel with years to invest as God invests in you. As he develops your doctrine, as he develops your character. Another thing that you need, that you will learn in the wilderness is that you will be strengthened. That's what the Bible says happened to Saul. Saul was strengthened. Why did he need to be strengthened? Well, how was he received by the Jews? You can answer the question, how was he received by the Jews? They sought to kill him. How was he received by the Christians? They were afraid of him. He was not welcomed by those that he went to share the gospel with. Nor was he welcomed by those that he was partners with in the gospel. He faced opposition. And I want to tell you something. When you stand for two, when you say yes to God, you have an enemy. You have a supernatural enemy. You have Satan and the demons. You have the world, the flesh. He is the prince of the power of the air. You have a culture that is programmed to ridicule you and mock you and scorn you. And there will be governments. There are currently in this world today governments who will actively persecute you physically for naming the name of Christ and being obedient to his teaching. You will have opposition in the world, but don't be afraid. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Amen? So when we say yes to God, we say yes without fear. We say yes by entrusting God with our fears and being obedient. We say yes when it's lonely. I can tell you story after story of missionary after missionary and pastor after pastor, those that have had biographies written of them who felt all alone in their work and their ministry. Paul did. Not only was he three years in the wilderness, he came to Jerusalem and they said, yeah, we don't trust this guy. Finally, he comes, he gets an audience with Peter and Peter alone, Peter and James, the brother of Christ. He's there for a couple of weeks and then he goes out and he begins to preach in the synagogues in Jerusalem and they sought to kill him. And so the disciples said, all right, buddy, back to Cilicia, back to Tarsus with you. And so they send him to Caesarea and then they send him up to Tarsus. What was in Tarsus? Mom and dad. That's where he was raised. 
I was home. How long was he in Tarsus? What's next, Lord? I'm trying to be obedient. What's next, Lord? You've saved me. You called me. You told me to be a, a witness not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles and even to kings. And everywhere I go, they want to kill me. And every believer's door I knock in, they don't, they don't want to open the door. They're scared I didn't come to knock on the door, but to knock in the door. And every time it seems like I take a step forward in ministry, it seems like I, t- I get pushed back. And now I'm in Caesarea and traveling up the coast. And now I'm stuck at home. And I'm stuck at home in obscurity for a period of time until God says to Barnabas, Hey, remember Saul. He can help you at this church in Antioch. We'll get to that when we get to Acts chapter 13. Here's what I want you to understand. When we say yes to God, sure we'll face opposition, sure we'll face isolation, sure we'll face difficulty. But we have something that the world does not have. We have the Spirit of God. We have the power of God. We have the person of God. And we can face these things to the glory of God because we have a higher calling and because we have the equipping answer. So I want to close this message with just a quick application uh, that I think is important for us to note that we can we can draw from the life of the Apostle Paul. I think that sometimes the reason we aren't saying yes more often to God is because we aren't listening to God what to what God's saying to us. We aren't listening. And I'm going to tell you one of the biggest culprits in my life for not listening, and I believe one of the biggest culprits in our culture for not listening is we're too busy. We got too much going on. There is always noise. There is always noise. Too many voices. You get in the car and there's music. Or, if you're like me, you're listening to an audio book. Or a podcast. Or even a sermon. You get home. And you're interacting with people in their words and it's communication. And you got to pay attention. It's not like you don't have to pay attention. You have to pay attention. And then there's the television and the noise is going in the background. Or there's the sound of children or there's the sound of parents or the phone is ringing. How many of you gotten a text since you've been on this property this morning? Don't raise your hand. How many of you sent a text since you got here already this morning? The good thing about texts is they sit there and wait on you until you get to reply to them. Some of them do. And we are inundated with noise. We are inundated with sound until we cannot be still and know that he is God. Can I give you just a few things? First thing, you've got to slow down and think more. You've got to be willing to carve out time in your life. To allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. When it says think more, put think slash pray. Open up your mind to God, to the word of God. Speak to him and listen to him. What did Paul do in Damascus while he was waiting for whatever came next? And he didn't know what it was. The Bible says very clearly he was praying. I don't know what to do. He that lacked wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. But ask in faith, nothing wavering. 
slow down, take time to pray more, to think more, and really probably should put meditate on the Word of God more. I think that's very, very important, which really takes us to the second point. If you'll go ahead and put that up on the screen. We need to take a media fast and a Bible feast. How about that? You guys like to eat? I do. I like to eat very, very much. I like fudge rounds and whoppers and little Nestle's candy bars. Um, not true of me today, but there were were days in the not too distant past where I would go days at a time and eat during the day. Suzanne prepares meals. I want you to understand none of this is laid at the threshold or at the door of my wife. She feeds me well. If it weren't for her, I'd have been dead a long time ago because I would go days and I would have Mountain Dews and peanut M&Ms and that was my sustenance for the day. I like chocolate. And it'll kill you. Just going to let you know, right? Why does that matter? It matters because if you fill your mind with junk food and you're just listening to the latest news or the latest self-help or the latest entertainment, the latest episode of your favorite show, if you continue to fill your mind with things that have no nutritional value, things that have no spiritual value, you're going to suffer because of it. And so you need to fast for periods of time from the media. And you need to feast for periods of time from God's Word. Amen? Slow down. Think, pray, meditate more. Take a media fast and a Bible feast. And then the third thing is you need to be moving forward. In your obedience, you need to be practicing saying yes. The illustration that I use is the illustration that the Apostle Paul uses. It's the illustration that the prophet Isaiah uses. And that is simply that you begin with where you are. And you begin to walk. And you exercise those disciplines in that area of surrender. And then as you are strengthened, you will grow and you will be given greater assignments. And it's less of you and more of Christ. And, and you're, you're following this purpose of glorifying God increases as you mature and as you grow. As you experience more and more the process of giving glory to God. Listen, your life matters to the kingdom of God. Amen. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Then grow. Practice saying yes to God. Father, I want to thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. I thank you that you have given to us a higher calling. I thank you that we no longer live for the approval of others, but we live simply to please you. Our life is in your hands. I thank you, Father, that you do direct our paths, that you have a, 
a mission for us and that you call us to be prepared for that mission. You want us to know truth, to not be led astray, to be tossed about with every wind of doctrine, but you want to develop in us sound doctrine that comes from diligent study of your word. And more than that, or through that, you develop in us character, your character, those traits that give glory and honor to you, those character traits that show forth that you are the king of our lives, that we live according to you. Father, I pray that you'll just continue to equip us, that you will strengthen us for those times of opposition, that you'll uh, equip us for those times of isolation and in those times of isolation. And I pray, Father, that you will strengthen us as we walk through the times of difficulty. Remember that you walk with us and you are sufficient. So keep us from being too busy. Help us to be still and know that you are God. Help us to set our mind on things above and not on things of this earth. Help us to be obedient to you in all things for your glory and for the good of the world you've placed us in. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.